we need to do this morning. And uh, I appreciate the privilege once again to bring God's Word. John chapter 19, our scripture reading was verses 1 through 11. I want to read one of those verses again now uh, for us so that uh, uh, we have that as a background. We'll have a word of prayer, and then uh, let's, we're going to get right involved in this message here this morning. John chapter 19, verse 10. Then Pilate saith unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? And he continues, Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and power to release thee? Think about that. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll look at the message for today. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the way the sunshine does cheer our spirits. Thank you that we're looking forward now to coming into a time of the year when we have uh, some brighter days, even some longer days, and uh, some temperatures that make it just a little easier for us to do right and be out at church and be involved. And thank you for the good group of people who are here this morning. Thank you for the good spirit. I pray, Father, now that as we uh, enter into this time of, of this aspect of our worship in which we listen to God's word, open our hearts, and... Uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we trust and pray. Be submissive to any truths that you bring to our attention that you want us to know, that you want us to respond to. Uh, I pray, Father, you would just have your will and way in all that's said and done. Thank you again for bringing the Chapmans. Thank you for the things that we've already heard from them. And pray you'll bless their afternoon, give them rest, especially as they had a, a, a little more arduous travel day yesterday. And uh, make and bless the service this evening to be a good one. And we'll thank you as we look forward to that. But right now, help us to concentrate on the message at hand so that we don't miss those things that you have for us. And always, Lord, we do want to make our prayer that if any knows not the Lord Jesus Christ in the service this morning, that this particular message would be clear and plain and the truths that we learn would go home to those hearts to draw men and women and boys and girls to the lovely Savior. And thank you for the privilege of praying these things in his wonderful name. Amen. Well, this Sunday morning and next Sunday morning, we have messages in the Gospel of John. They asked him this. We've been looking at these questions that people ask Jesus throughout the course of his ministry. Try to remember, I've said this a number of times, but I do it on purpose because I want you to take this away. And I think some things, if you repeat them a number of times, then people do. But when we will have completed this series, we will have somewhere around 35 messages. I'll give you maybe an exact count later. But somewhere around 35 messages in this, this is not just a series that you're going to undertake lightly. And I thank the Lord that he's provided the opportunity. I didn't know when we started this if we would finish it. But I thank the Lord that he's provided the opportunity to do that. But these questions, remember, um, you can kind of lump them broadly into three categories. The largest category is the questions the disciples asked, and so often we see ourselves in those questions and profit greatly by seeing what they were thinking as they reflect oftentimes what we are thinking and then see what the Lord had to say in response. You had a whole, another great category, perhaps a little bit less, but of questions asked by people who were Jesus' antagonists, people who were his detractors, people who, who were his enemies, and then you have a kind of a catch-all category of just people that Jesus encountered in everyday life, people from all walks of life. Uh, you can debate maybe where you're going to put Pilate in this. Uh, Pilate doesn't quite go into the category in the sense that you're thinking of it as Jesus' opponents. 
It may be that he's construed that way, but he's not like the Sadducees. He's not like the Pharisees. Pilate doesn't enter into this with a dog in the fight, so to speak, because he really wants to see Jesus put to death. He really wants to see Jesus out of the way. So I tend to consider Pilate more along the lines of just someone in a position that Jesus encountered, but that encounter led to an incredible opportunity. We saw that last week when we looked at the first interview that Pilate had with Jesus, and we saw this question. There were a series of questions, of course. That's what an interview is like, whether it's a job interview or whether it's an interview like this in a legal context. Pilate asked Jesus a number of questions. This is in chapter number 18 until finally you get down to the end of the chapter, verse 38. And as I said last week, no exaggeration intended whatever. Pilate asks this question of Jesus, which really has echoed down through time. What is truth? And I don't have time to go back over that again today, but I can tell you this. Jesus was in his presence. He was in the presence of truth incarnate. He was in the presence of the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And he had an opportunity, the like unto which very few people have ever had in this exchange with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he's going to have another opportunity. Things have changed a little bit in this, okay? But we get into it in a similar way. Um, Pilate has brought Jesus out to the people. They, they demand his crucifixion. Pilate's not happy with this because three times over, Pilate tells them, look, I've examined him. I find no fault at all. In him, you take him, you get rid of him, you crucify him. And then when they respond back, well, we have a law, and by our law, he he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. That that caused Pilate to kind of have some fear and trepidation about this. And so he goes back in to talk to Jesus. When he goes back to talk to Jesus, there are... There are just a couple of little lead-up questions to this. He says something to Jesus. Jesus doesn't respond. That's significant for a number of reasons. I'll try to get to that uh, a little bit later in the message. But Pilate then says to him, uh, or he says to Pilate in verse number 9, he says, Whence art thou? See, he's, he's bothered by this idea that the Jews have said that he's, he's made himself the Son of God. And so Jesus has already said to him, Look, my kingdom is not of this world. And so he's putting these things together and he's thinking to himself, I don't like this. I I, I would rather get shed of having to deal with this individual, whatever. And so he says, whence art thou? And Jesus doesn't respond to him. Well, Pilate's a little irritated by that. And you can understand that in in the position that Pilate's in. He's the one asking the questions. And he's the one who's in authority. And there's a certain, as I said last week, amount of that Roman pride that he's operating under. And he's a little irritated when he says to Jesus, Speakest thou not unto me? And then he asks, and this is the operative question. This is the one that's worth spending the time on. He says to him, Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and power to release thee? And this is quite interesting, especially in the answer that Jesus provides to him. The more I think about this and the more I thought about this, I gave some thought just to skipping this. And the more I prayed about it and the more I thought about it, I said, no, I can't skip this because this is going to give us the opportunity to consider some incredible truths in relationship to a theme that really should be very dear to our hearts, and that is the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Three thoughts that come to our attention, I believe, that arise right out of this question that Pilate asks 
and the answer that Jesus gives him. And the first observation that I think we can make about the death of Christ is that it was ordained. Ordained by God. Now, it's kind of interesting when you look at this, because on earth, Pilate did, in fact, possess the authority that he claimed to have. The word power is used here in the English translation, but as I've told you before, sometimes you have different words in the original, so this isn't the typical word for power, dunamis, which is dynamite. This is exousia. This is the word for authority. And what Pilate is saying to him is, don't you realize, in my position, I have the authority? Well, from his perspective, with the light that he had and in the position that he was in, what he was saying was true. Now, there is a minor technicality because Pilate's authority was also delegated, and Pilate's authority was delegated from Caesar. But with the authority that a procurator, a Roman procurator, would have, Pilate had very wide-ranging authority. There was a great deal of latitude to the authority that he had on this occasion. So he speaks the truth from the limited perspective in which he operates. A governor would have authority like that. He would have the power of life and death over a prisoner, just as he had the authority to release one to them at the Passover. You had a man who was an insurrectionist. You had a man who had committed murder in the insurrection, a man who by all rights should have been put to death. His name was what? His name was Barabbas. He had the authority to release that man, and he had the authority to crucify that man. So he's just a little bit irked because he's already running scared. He's already skittish about this thing. And he wants some peace of mind from Jesus, something that Jesus might say, Jesus does not answer him. That irritates him. Well, he's right. As with all human government, though, it is ordained by God. You know, it, it, these, these things introduce us to many things that we find more widely developed in the epistles as we go later into the New Testament. And so there are several passages, but let's go to one, keep your fingers here, but let's go to one that's uh, probably the go-to one most of the time when we talk about this subject, Romans chapter 13. This gives us some insight, too, into how Jesus conducted himself on the occasion, because this is Paul now writing to Christian people who were having to live under the Roman government, just as the situation before us is now. And he says, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. Why is that? Because you agree with them all the time? No, boy, boy, oh boy, if that were sort of the, the litmus test, you wouldn't be doing much, would you? Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power. This, again, is authority. There is no authority but of God, and the powers that be are ordained of God. Well, see, this is a level about which Pilate doesn't really know and under which he doesn't, he operates under it, but blindly. When we go down a little bit later in the chapter and arrive at verse number four, this really begins to shed light on where Pilate is because it says, for he is a minister of God to thee for good. I wish some of them would read that, that they're supposed to be there to promote good. But anyway, it continues... But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. Now, in the Roman world, the sword was an instrument of capital punishment. The Romans used crucifixion, but not on a Roman citizen. On a Roman citizen, you'd be beheaded with the sword, which is what happened to the Apostle Paul. And so it was the instrument, just like you'd 
talk today about the electric chair or a lethal injection or the gallows or whatever method might be used, a firing squad for a, for a capital offense and for an execution. He is the minister of God to thee for good, but he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God or avenger to execute wrath upon him or him that doeth evil. See, but in a broader sense of what's going on there that day, a sense I think that Pilate really didn't have any frame of reference to understand. Just you know, folks, what we're talking about now is very true today. There are many, many people who are in government positions of authority who have no clue of the greater spiritual truth that pervades and controls what's going on. They feel like they have power, just like Pilate felt he had power. There's a sense in which they do, but there's a greater, more overriding sense in which God is in control, that they are meant to be in that position with an authority which is delegated from him. If more people saw that to be true today, we'd have differences, big differences going on in this country. If you had some of these politicians and you had some of these judges who understood that they were put in a position by God, they have no earthly authority of their own except what's been delegated by them to God. And it's a stewardship that they are meant to carry out on behalf of God to enforce his laws and his purposes in the earth. If we had a greater understanding of that and submission to that truth, it would be a different country that we live in today. I can tell you that right now. But there are so many of them that just don't have that frame of reference. They're not spiritual people. They're not God-worshipping people. But folks, what I, what the whole point of what I'm driving at, that doesn't change that it's true. And it didn't change that it was true that day. That here was Pilate thinking that it was all his show. What he decided would go. In reality, there's a God in heaven who controls all things, who ordains all things, and who ultimately determines that even though the human operators, now you have to watch this, even though the human operators are responsible for the decisions they make, this is not out of control with God. Pilate is going to end up carrying out exactly what God has determined from the council chambers of eternity past. We're going to look at some scriptures on this. I think it's imperative that we do that because there are a number of very potent scriptures. It's interesting that the apostles picked up on this as early just about as was possible after Jesus went back to heaven. Acts chapter 2. Turn there for a moment. Again, you can keep fingers in your place here so it's easier to get back to. But now here's Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. And he has this to say. I want you to see how this trip was, this tr- truth was already gripping the heart of Peter. Him, he says, well, let's read verse 22 to get the context. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, have ye taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. What's Peter saying? Peter was saying what seemed like an absolute train wreck to us weeks before, what seemed like an absolute disaster. It seemed like this this one that we invested three years in following, thinking he was the Messiah, and now all of a sudden, like those two on the road to Emmaus, they're all dejected, they're all sad, 
They can't figure out, oh, we put our faith in him. We thought it would have been he who would have redeemed Israel. And Jesus drew near in that compassionate way. He chided them just a little bit. Oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And Peter's got a hold of that now. He says, you guys think you stole the show. You guys think you did away with the Prince of Life. But this was all determined well before he wasn't delivered in the greater sense by Caiaphas or by Judas. In the greater sense, he was delivered by God the Father himself. So Peter has a hold of that truth. It's something that's giving him confidence. It's something that's giving him this renewed strength. The big difference between the Peter of Passover and the Peter of Pentecost. Well, let's go to another one. Just turn two pages. We'll go to Acts chapter 4, verse 27. Now they come back. This is a different chapter. It's a different occasion. But uh, Peter and John, they've been hauled in there. And the Sanhedrin has raked them over the coals. We told you not to teach or preach in the name of this man, Jesus. Here you are doing it. They go back now to hold a prayer meeting. That seemed like a wise thing to do, don't you think, when you have that kind of problem? And so they went back, and here's what they pray amongst themselves. For of a truth against thy holy child, you understand that is servant. It's not meant like we think of a young child. This word is a Greek word that has that meaning, but is used in the Old Testament in those servant passages. So this is a reference to Jesus and his role as the servant, like we find him in Isaiah, the servant of the Lord. For of a truth against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. What? For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Pilate says, I have power to crucify you. And on one level he did. And on another level, he was simply carrying out what God had determined before the foundation of the earth. Let's go to the book of 1 Peter. Peter's got this truth. Paul got it too, but Peter's really got this. And the Holy Spirit leads him to elaborate even more when we come to 1 Peter chapter number 1. He says in verse 18, chapter 1, 1 Peter, For as much as ye know... Ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Look at this. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. And I have one more for you. This is the one I've been itching to get to. Turn to Revelation chapter 13. I wanted you to see how laced the scripture is with this truth. That's why I had you look at the different verses. But look at this one now, because to me, especially if you think of this in the light of progressive revelation, this is kind of the capstone verse. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of, the, of life of the Lamb. Look, slain from the foundation of the world. Beloved, this is something that God pulls back the veil just ever so slightly for us to be able to gaze into the counsels, the eternal counsels of the living God 
and to understand that somehow, as best we can understand and explain this, there was a covenant between the Father and the Son, the Father covenanting covenanting with the Son to give him a people for his name, a people for whom he went to the cross to die and redeem, a people, the, the writer of the Hebrews talks about, bringing many sons to glory. And the Son in return agreeing and covenanting with the Father to come and to give his life in the program of redemption in order that that might be accomplished. So theologians have really, uh, you know, had some interesting times with all of this. There's a couple of comments that I thought you might be interested in. Here's, Here's an observation by John MacArthur. He says, so the death of Christ was no mistake. No train wreck. Nor was it something that was just bad luck or one of those things. It was not random. God is the supreme historian who wrote all history before it ever began. Having done their worst, they merely succeeded in fulfilling God's eternal plan. And I don't know about you, but I can get excited about that. That he's able to take the wrath of man and cause that to praise him. But I like what J. Vernon McGee says because he has a little way of telling us in a story about this that sort of keeps, it brings it back to the point that I want to end up making all the time with this. He says, you know, when he was in school, he said they'd go back and forth about this. So you can imagine theological students. They'd go back and forth about this, trying to figure out whether or which one comes first, God's foreknowledge or God's foreordination. But he said... Later, over the years, he began to realize he didn't have to really worry about that so much. The most important thing was to realize that Christ was foreknown from the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. And then he says this, to put it very simply, the cross of Christ was not an ambulance sent to a wreck. Christ was the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world because God knew all the time that Vernon McGee would need a savior. And he loved him enough to provide that Savior. I don't need a computer to, get over, to go over this. I only need a God with a great big heart of love who provided redemption by his grace. That's what this is all about, beloved. And it, for what little infinitesimal hair width of it that you and I can grasp to understand that you and I were on the heart of God in eternity. And that between the Father and the Son, this plan of redemption is carried out in such a way that Jesus comes in the fullness of time to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. Nothing Pilate did was anything more, and yet Pilate bears the responsibility for it, than God determined should take place. No train wreck, no disaster, not out of anyone's control. God's got his hand on the whole thing. Secondly, it was voluntary. This death was on the part of Jesus was voluntary. Do you notice that Jesus is submissive? After all, didn't he say in the garden when Peter pulled out his sword when they came to arrest Jesus, lopped off the one guy's ear? That was Peter, you know. John told on him. It was. Don't we find his name in John's gospel? 
Jesus said, put your sword away. That might be for another time, not now. Don't you think I can't presently call 12 legions of angels? So the, the songwriter took a little liberty with that. I don't begrudge that because it, it sounds better. I guess we've just gotten used to that. You know, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. But if you're talking 12 Roman legions, you're talking anywhere between 60 and 72,000 angels. I don't know. To me, if you have five or 72,000, what's the difference? But just so we can be precise, a Roman legion had anywhere between five and 6,000 in it. And Jesus said, what were you going to do with that sword there? I've got weapons that you don't know anything about if that's what I've really wanted to do here. Or, as he said in, in the earlier context of where we are in, in John's gospel, he told Pilate, he said, if my kingdom were of this world, John eighteen thirty six, then would my servants fight? If Jesus had wanted to spawn an insurrection against the Roman government, he certainly could have done that. He doesn't do that. He remains silent at first. That's why I told you this would come into play it irritates Pilate. Pilate says, speakest thou not to me? But he remains silent at first because all of this is in large measure in fulfillment of what it says in the book of Isaiah. You might profit by seeing this actually in your Bible. So would you turn to Isaiah 53? I just want to show you something that you might not have noticed. Sometimes these verses are so familiar to us that we glide right over them and there's things that somebody points out and we say, oh goodness, I've read that 500 times and never noticed that. But the Bible's that way, you know. That's why she keep reading it. But in Isaiah chapter 53, look at verse 7. It says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he openeth not his mouth. He has brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before... What's that next word? What's the next word after that? Her. As a sheep before... What's the next word? Her. See that word, H-E-R? Her shearers. Is dumb. That is, doesn't say anything. So he openeth not his mouth. So what's the big deal? Well, don't you find it a little unusual that the prophet would mention the you? Go out of his way to mention a female lamb? Sheep? Why? Well, because the ram would kick and fuss. Not the you. Jesus doesn't kick and fuss. Jesus doesn't resist. Jesus submits sweetly, quietly, answering questions only when they needed to be answered to clarify the truth at hand, never to resist, always to submit. He lives out completely what we read in Romans 13 about being subject even though what's happening here is a travesty of justice. You see, the Lord said this himself. We have the prophet, we have the example in the story, but Jesus says it in his own words. And if you go back to John chapter 10, you'll be able to read this for yourself. But he says this in verse 17, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. And this will be referencing something that I spoke of before. 
the covenant between the Father and the Son. This commandment have I received of my Father. It's voluntary because Jesus has already determined this is God's will. This is God's plan. I come to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. That's his whole posture in this. And it's to give his life on Calvary in obedience to the Father and because of his great love for sinners. He said it himself, greater loveth no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. But Jesus isn't necessarily just laying down his life for his friends. It's not just Peter he's dying for. It's not just John he's dying for. It's Pilate. It's the Sanhedrin. It's Caiaphas. It's a world full of sinners who are his antagonists and who are his enemies. This is what Paul, as I say, as you get to the epistles and some of these truths are more fully developed, this is what Paul is talking about when he says, when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for his friends. No, for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love, demonstrates his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for sinners, and he died for sinners voluntarily. Why? Why would you do that? You only do that because you have a great heart of love for sinners. I was reminded in preparation for this message of a story I had read some time before. The story concerned Air Florida Flight 90 that in January of 1982 crashed into the chilly waters, January, crashed into the chilly waters of the Potomac River. I get cold just thinking about that. Of course, most of the plane sunk immediately, but there was a aft section of the plane, a tail section of the plane that was still above the water, was sinking, albeit less quickly than the other, and there were four people who were clinging to that, all busted up, all injured, and there were two that were in the water, two that were treading water. Well, of course, it took a little bit of time for the responders, but eventually a rescue helicopter made its way to the scene. And as the helicopter drew near, they swooped down, they dropped a line first to a man whose name was Bert Hamilton. He was treading water. He was in the water. He was about 10 feet from the, the tail section that was still floating. He took the line, wrapped it around him. The helicopter snatched him out of there and rescued him. The helicopter returned. Next, they zeroed in on a man who had a, a balding head and dropped the rope to him, his name was Arland Williams. Williams caught the rope. Immediately he gave it to someone else, a woman by the name of Kelly Duncan. She was a flight attendant on Air Florida Flight 90. She took the rope, put it around herself, and was rescued. The helicopter came back again. They aimed the line again at Williams. Again, Williams caught the line, but once again he passed it to another person. This man, Joe Steely, was the probably the most severely injured man in the entire situation. Steely grabbed the rope, wrapped it around himself, but also grabbed a woman 
whose name was Priscilla Tarado, she clung to him. And just before the helicopter moved off, they dropped a second line to a, a woman who was in the water. Her name was Patricia Felch. But as the helicopter rose, this man, Joe Steely, was so injured that he felt his grip weakening on the one woman. And at the same time, the woman who had grabbed the second rope was so badly injured that she felt her strength ebbing away and both the women dropped back into the water. About that time, there was a man on the shore who was close enough to do something about it. His name was Lenny Skutnik, and he jumped into the freezing water of the river, swam out and got the one woman, Patricia Felch, and got her back to the shore. The helicopter flew down close, and a man who was an officer on board, his name was Gene Windsor, he clutched the other woman, got down close enough that he could get the other woman in the water, they got her back safely to the land. It's now 29 minutes since that flight crashed into that river. 10 minutes since the helicopter's first trip and Williams, they've all been rescued but Williams. Williams' term has, has, turn has finally come. The chopper turned back to rescue Williams. The guys on board thinking to themselves, we can't wait to meet this guy, he's a bona fide hero. And when they got there, they looked. They couldn't see the balding head. He'd sunken beneath the waters and was gone. Later that night, Gene Windsor, who had pulled the other woman from the water, wept as he told his wife that story. The pilot said this. He could have gone on the first trip, but he put everyone else ahead of himself, everyone. You know, that, beloved, in some small sense, that grips me because that, in some small sense, illustrates what my Jesus did. He put everyone in front of himself, everyone. He's some sort of a hero. Well, our last thought we'll take just a couple moments for is that this death was not just ordained by God, not just voluntary on Jesus' part, but it was undeserved. Jesus' words, when he spoke back to Pilate, call attention to this because he talks about his betrayal. And so when you look at verse number 11, Jesus answered and said, Thou could have had no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. This is our other point, but now listen to this. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. Well, here again, you sort of have the penchant of the King James Version for using English synonyms as it translates because delivered unto or delivered over, nothing wrong with the translation, whatever. It's a perfectly fine translation. But it's the typical word for betray. So who is Jesus talking about? Because he puts it in the singular. He says, he that betrayed thee unto me hath the greater sin. There's guilt here because you're condemning an innocent man. This is undeserved. This is a travesty of justice. And there's guilt here, and you bear some, yes. But there's someone who has the greater sin in this, and that's he that delivered thee to me, who also knew perfectly well that this was undeserved, that Jesus had committed no crime. Now, 
Bible students go back and forth over who that is because if you certainly, we, I think your, your normal tendency is to think first of all of Judas because Judas is the arch betrayer and this word is used of him in the uh, context that's a little more distant. Look at John 18, 2. But the, the word is used again and again of, but here it's translated betrayed of Judas and Judas also which betrayed him. Jesus, uh, he, Judas is the one that we, we know preeminently as the betrayer. But now here, watch this. Turn back to chapter 19. and In the nearer context, this is used of the Jewish people, but it's also used of Caiaphas. John chapter 19, or 18 rather, look at verse 30. And they answered and said unto him, this is the, them speaking to Pilate, whoever the spokesperson is. If he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered the him up unto thee. That's our word, betrayed. We would not have betrayed him up unto thee if he were not a malefactor. Verse 35, it's used again. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. There's our word, delivered thee, have betrayed. This is why Pilate smelled a rat in the whole thing. Why would they do that? If you're a king, why would they betray their own king? That doesn't make any sense to me. So Pilate knew something was off with this whole thing. So who is the betrayer here? Who is the one who has the greater guilt? Well, we can't solve it this morning. Some people say Judas. Some people say Caiaphas. It's in the singular, he that betrayed, not they, he. Some people say Caiaphas. Doesn't really matter. In the end, I can tell you this. What we do know is that you can take your pick, whether it was Judas, whether it was Caiaphas, speaking for the Jewish nation, whoever it is, this is what we know, that he was betrayed by corrupt men and condemned by a coward. They all knew he was innocent. Pilate said it three times. Look at 1838. And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and saith unto him, them, I find in him no fault at all. Chapter 19, verse 4. Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth unto you that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Verse 6. When the chief priests therefore and officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto him, Take ye him and crucify him for I find no fault. This is an innocent man. He died on the cross for Barabbas and Barabbas went free. But you know, what Jesus points out is there may be varying degrees of guilt, and there are. And there are varying degrees of punishment, but they were all responsible. And in a broader sense, I can tell you who else is responsible, you and me. We read about this in Isaiah chapter 53, surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him 
the iniquity of us all. See, in the broader sense, yes, they were guilty, but in the broader sense, you and I hammered those nails. You and I were in that crowd. You and I bear the responsibility. If you ever get a chance, this might be worth your time. If you have internet access, sometime look up Rembrandt's It's Not a Painting. It's actually a dry drawing, which takes, we won't get off on that, but it takes incredible skill to do what Rembrandt did. But look up Rembrandt's dry pencil or drawing entitled The Three Crosses. You find a very interesting thing there. It's exactly what the title implies. You see the three crosses. He, has, he uses the shadowing and the lighting effect masterfully in such a way so that it, 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 is, it is calling attention to Jesus, which it should. But when you look at the crowd, you see some interesting things. You see Mary. You see John, who became the caretaker for Mary. You see Roman soldiers. You see angry people in the crowd. But over on the fringe, I believe the left side of the drawing, over in the fringe you see an unidentified face looking. Art critics for years have concluded that that was Rembrandt himself, drew his own face into that scene because he came to realize exactly what his own guilt was. Sinners put him there. I like a story, and the Chapmans might like this being in missions work, but years ago the Daily Bread told a story. A missionary was speaking to a remote tribe of people. They'd never heard about Jesus. So there was a lot to tell. And there was a gathering, they were seated, and in the front row was the the tribal chief listening to this story. And the missionary went through and told about Jesus and told about his life and told about who he is and his sinlessness and all of this type of thing. That, And finally, it got to the, the apex of the story. It got to the crucifixion, and he began to narrate how Jesus was cruelly crucified on that cross and all of a sudden the the chief in the front row jumped up and he said stop take him down from the cross I belong there not him you know I, I read that and I think to myself the spirit of God was certainly at work in that assembly that day because the spirit of God opened that man's eyes and heart to the true meaning of the cross that there he was dying not for his own sins, not for anything he deserved, but for ours. We deserve to be there, and we put him there. And when you put all of these thoughts together, that Jesus' death was ordained by God, why would God want to condemn his own son? That Jesus' death was voluntary, why would you want to give yourself over to the cruelties of a Roman cross for such as we, that Jesus' was un- death was undeserved, why would you do these things? 
you can only come out with that God is love. That he does it because he loves sinners. A lot of people say this. I don't know that I would disagree. That the finest hymn ever written that describes all of this as it goes through the stanzas is Isaac Watts' hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. You get to the end, which is kind of where the climax is, and it says, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. 